God's holy word once again. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Great and mighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make this word a swift word, transforming and renewing our minds, enlivening and warming our affections, and renewing our wills unto the glory of Christ the life that is found in Christ, and to the service uh, which we are called to in him. We pray in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Beloved people of God, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, are you building your life on the rock of Christ. When I was growing up, one of the common commercials that I would see when I was watching basketball or football games were uh, for the investment and insurance company Prudential. Any other 90s kids who liked sports, you'll know what I'm talking about. Build your life on the rock was the motto of this firm. And their logo was a picture or a, a sketched image of the either northern or eastern face of the rock of Gibraltar, right there near the mouth of uh, the Mediterranean Sea, uh, the British territory there. The very large limestone foundation kind of comes to a point. The face of it is gray. The back of it is uh, covered with, uh, with greenery. A huge rock right there at the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea. And the message was, invest your money wisely, protect your assets with insurance, uh, be prudent about these things, and if you do, you are building your life on a firm and a solid foundation. Now, there's some wisdom to this. There's an earthly wisdom to this that is very practical and with which we can agree. It is good to be wise with your money and your investments, but if you are so, it is not as if you are building your life on a rock. Right? Good finances in ultimate things, considered in light of ultimate things, is not a rock, it is sinking sand. What we do here each week in, in our worship, in our confession, our profession of Christ, and our coming to name the name of Christ, what we are saying is what it means to truly build your life on the rock, the rock of Christ. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus is called and calls himself the cornerstone. And are we building our lives on him alone? The Apostle Peter takes that great step here 
in this passage before us. Now, many people in the Gospel of Matthew have confessed some kind of faith in Christ, and in many instances, it is true faith, saving faith. But in a sense, the pages of redemptive history turn before us here in this uh, enormous moment in which Peter, all of the disciples, are called to confess who do they believe Jesus Christ is, and Peter confesses him here. We can think of back in chapter 14, the apostles have said after Jesus calms the storm, truly you are the Son of God, similar to what Peter has, to what Peter says here. But in this moment, everything comes to this particular point for the truth of Christ to be summed up in such a way that Jesus can look at him, look at Peter, say, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you to receive that blessing. And so we ask ourselves this morning, brothers and sisters, is that the blessing that we would receive from our Lord relative to the profession that we make with our hearts and with our mouths? Is that the blessing that we would receive? Are you building your life on the rock, brothers and sisters? Let us consider these things together. First, is your profession of Christ on the basis of reason or on the basis of revelation? Does it come from some kind of exercise of the mind, or is it the exercise of true faith given to you by the God who has created all things and creates faith? They're here in the region of Caesarea Philippi. We've been following Jesus and the disciples in terms of the geography, so Caesarea Philippi is farther north. We talked about kind of Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Sea of Galilee is Lake Michigan. So here they would be far north on the eastern side. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, right at the base of Mount Hermon. And uh, Herod, uh, Philip the Tetrarch, made this small town into a much larger city at this time. A very beautiful landscape. Mount Hermon would have been covered with snow for most of, at least at the top, for most of the year would have been a more lush land than you would have seen on a lot of the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, certainly farther south. So this is a beautiful landscape, but is largely Gentile inhabited for sure. This is Gentile territory. And that's instructive. We, we saw last week how quickly they left Jewish territory again to go back across the Sea of Galilee into Gentile territory. And the blessing that, that Peter receives from Jesus tells us a lot about the turning of redemptive history, that the blessings that we receive from our triune Lord happen anywhere in the world for those who confess Jesus Christ, and we're getting glimpses of that more and more, and certainly a significant glimpse of that today. Far flung from Jerusalem, almost as far away from Jerusalem as Jesus goes, and here he offers this, bless- this blessing, this blessing of life this blessing that flows forth into worship, Peter's worship, and that's instructive for us. For we have, been set, we have been told that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We have those heavenly blessings, even though most of us have probably never been to Jerusalem. We are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, and from there we await our Savior. But Jesus asks his disciples, who are people saying that I am? Uh, what's, what's the word on me? What are people saying? And as they give Jesus the summary of the responses, what people have been saying, basically all of those answers are attempts to rationally explain the phenomenon of Jesus. Looking at the evidence, 
weighing the evidence and saying, okay, here's sort of a, an explanation that tries to make sense of it. So Jesus has been a bit of a troublemaker, stirring up a lot of trouble. So people say, well, maybe this is John the Baptist. Maybe John the Baptist has come back. And we remember that Herod was particularly worried about that. He's also done many signs and wonders, and that would remind people of Elijah's ministry. So since he's done all these things, maybe he's like the prophet Elijah who also carried with him all of these attendant signs. Maybe he's like one of the later prophets, like Jeremiah, because he has done all of this great teaching and and proclamation. Maybe he's like one of these, these later prophets. The point of all of this is to say that there, at this point, is no unified response to who Jesus is. We have the the blessing of living on this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection. When we say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, we say it in unison. What we are reflecting is that the church has come to unify its response about who Jesus Christ is built largely, you could almost get a lot of those creeds, what we say about Jesus in those creeds from what Peter says today. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's worthy of our worship. He saves us because of his work. So those are the responses of reason. Jesus asks, but who do you all say that I am? That's the plural you, and that's important, significant for things we're going to consider in just a few moments. He asks all of the disciples there, Who do you all say that I am? And then Peter, as we often see in the gospel, Peter speaks up. He becomes a spokesman. He speaks on behalf of all because he has assumed in many ways a a leadership position among uh, the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. So what is significant about Peter's confession? Well, lots of things we know, but we'll focus on just a few. It's significant that Peter makes this confession of Christ Uh, relative to the occasion and the substance of what he confesses. So the occasion is very different than what we have just seen with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They go to Jesus and say, give us a sign. You show us who you are. Prove yourself to us, and then we will say what we think ought to be said about you. But this is not Peter going to Jesus and demanding a sign. Peter has been summoned Uh, unto this confession. Who do you say that I am? So no sign attends this. No sign is given here, and that's very significant because that, that shows us that within Peter's response, his confession is contained true faith. Also submission. He has submitted to Christ's call. Who do you all say that I am? So the Lord of all has said, I want you to say what you believe about me. And Peter submits to that, and in that we see that he recognizes the lordship of Christ. He's not one coming to Jesus and saying, you show me who you are. Jesus says, what do you believe about me? And then look at how the confession of Peter shows to us true faith. It shows to us true faith. There are many uh, human beings, many spiritual beings in the Gospels, demons in particular, that know something true about Jesus. They have pretty good knowledge. In fact, uh, demons have pretty accurate Christology. They know who Jesus is. They recognize who he is. And so, Peter's confession here is not just knowledge. There is all of the facets of true faith. Not only does he recognize the office of Jesus, you are the one who has been anointed 
you have been promised. You are the promised one of all of the prophets. You are the Messiah. So he recognizes Jesus' office. He recognizes Jesus' person, his nature. You are the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And so his, his knowledge is, is wonderful there. It's a good knowledge. But that's not all that's contained in faith. Knowledge is good. It's not the sum and substance of what faith is. But we also see inherent in the confession of Peter, there's trust and there is worship. He sees that when he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, we can think of there, they're sitting at the base of of Mount Hermon in Gentile territory with people who are worshiping vain idols. And so Peter is saying, you are the son of the living God. You You are the divine being who is worthy of worship. Because here we see all of these people around us who do not worship the living God. And so contained within the confession of Peter is this not only trust and submission, but worship. Jesus is worthy of all of these things. So he encapsulates all the things that we look for in true faith. Not only do you know about Jesus, not only do you assent to the truth of who he is, but then you trust him. You give yourself to him. Jesus gives this blessing. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah. He makes his earthly lineage clear, but then he immediately says that it's not your earthly lineage. It's not because of who you are in terms of your flesh and blood that you are able to say this. This comes to you by revelation from my Father. My Father has revealed this to you. So when Jesus says that, he confirms what Peter has just said. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, my Father revealed that to you. So he says, yes, I am the Son of the living God. But notice that right away, what does Jesus do? He shows Peter, he shows us that we are to give God glory for our faith. Peter is commended, blessed are you. This is wonderful what you have said. Nevertheless, it was not you, it was my Father who has revealed this to you. As Reformed people, we we rejoice in this. We ought to rejoice in this. The glory of God in salvation, the, the glory of the God who brings faith. This is what we have confessed this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. He predestined us to adoption as sons, to the praise of his glorious grace. It is God's grace that is to be praised in salvation because we did not arrive at it because of our superior intellect. We did not arrive at it simply by an exercise of reason. This is the response of faith that comes from revelation. And Peter reflects all of these things, but Jesus says, it was not you who did this. It was the work of God. In Martin Luther's small catechism, we use this from time to time for a confession of faith. He says, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, and he sanctifies me, and he keeps me in the true faith. So, beloved, is your confession of Christ like Peter's? Does it contain these aspects of true faith that not only do you have an understanding of who Jesus is, but as you make confession of Jesus Christ as your Lord, inherent is that is saying, I am coming to him and laying my life down. 
I don't make demands unto the person of Jesus Christ. He asks me, he asks the world, who do you say that I am? And we say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lord, worthy of worship. Is that something like your confession of Christ, the confession of true faith? And then secondly, do you praise God for your faith, beloved? Do you praise him for your faith? For flesh and blood did not reveal these things to you. If you have a vital, true faith in Jesus Christ, thank God for it. Praise Him for it. For it comes from Him. So, is it from reason or from revelation? That's our first consideration. Our second consideration is this. Relative to what Jesus says to Peter. Is Peter the spokesman for the disciples or is he some kind of sovereign? Is he instituted here as sort of an ongoing supreme leader of the church, uh, exactly and profoundly distinct from everyone else? You'll know what I'm talking about. This passage has been argued over. Miles of ink has been spilt uh, in regards to this blessing and what Jesus says to Peter, and we want to offer some comment here. So the Roman Catholic Church sees in this passage Peter instituted as the Pope of the church, the true vicar of Christ, the the king of his people on earth. Reformed and Protestant churches find here no such thing, and uh, we find here no such thing either as we consider it together this morning. The issue revolves around what Jesus says. The name Peter is Petros in the Greek, a name that means rock or stone, And Jesus says he will build his church on this Petra, which is the feminine form of that same word, rock. So you are the rock man, Jesus says. You are the rock man, and on this rock I will build my church. So you have some kind of wordplay going on there, and that's been the discussion. What does Jesus mean by this? Is he distinguishing from Peter when he says, on this rock, on this Petra, I will build my church? Is it Peter himself? What does he mean? Well, in the time of the Reformation, the Reformers, understandably so, wanted to distance themselves as much as possible from the personal connection that Peter had to that. So they said, the Petra on which Jesus will build his church is this confession of faith only. It it doesn't have anything to do with Peter. It's merely the fact uh, that he is the one who happens to confess Jesus Christ. So they distanced themselves from that so that they could show that there was no doctrine of the Pope in this passage. But since then, many good, faithful, reformed Protestants, exegetes, and scholars have acknowledged that there is a close connection here between what Jesus says to Peter and what he means by the rock. But the question is, what exactly does he mean by that? Because even if we were to say there's, there's a close personal connection with Peter here, you are still a long ways away from the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church and Uh, the papacy. Well, what we see here is that, first of all, we we, we understand that Peter is a leader of the apostles. He's a leader of the disciples. He he often speaks up. He speaks for them. He, He comes to Jesus with questions, with concerns. He is thought of as probably likely being perhaps the oldest of the 12 apostles who traveled with Jesus. And so he is certainly a leader, but throughout the New Testament, we find no evidence 
that Peter has some kind of supreme position. So we see in Ephesians chapter 2, for instance, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. All of the apostles, all of the prophets have been, uh, are, are part of the foundation of the church, and Christ Jesus himself is what? The cornerstone. But Peter does occupy this position of leadership within the circle of the apostles. And that's what's being highlighted here. It's that, that Peter here in this moment makes this confession of Christ. He places himself on the cornerstone, and all of those who make up the spiritual building of the church will follow in that path. The Gospel of Matthew makes very clear that Peter was the first one called. He's called as the first disciple of Jesus and the first apostle. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus, or Paul makes very clear that Jesus appears to Peter first and then to the twelve. Peter, throughout the Gospels, is sort of the de facto spokesman. In Matthew chapter 15, the previous chapter, Peter comes to Jesus saying, explain this parable to us. And you see that throughout the Gospels. He's the one who's being sent to Jesus to say things. He responds to Jesus at particular points. In John 6, Jesus says to the twelve, do you want to leave me as well? Do you want to go away? Because remember in John 6, the the teaching of Jesus was too difficult and people were leaving. Jesus says, are you going to go too? Peter responds saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. We, We can't go anywhere. We've already found that you have the answers. He brings appeals to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This worries all the disciples a lot. And what happens right after is when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Something that may have been going on here was the earthbound thinking of the disciples, that Jesus as the Messiah is going to restore to himself an earthly kingdom and we're going to be there with him. And then it says in verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you, so what then will we have? So he brings the appeals to Jesus. And that's often what's going on. So all of that to say, Peter is the spokesman for the disciples, a leader within that circle, but we see all throughout scriptures that does not have anything to do with the doctrine of the papacy, and he certainly has no supreme uh, position here. And so while he is spokesman, there's also something else that we see with Peter, because we see a lot of good with Peter, but we see a lot of bad with Peter too. And with that, he becomes an example for all Christians. He uh, has a life that becomes something like a blueprint for the Christian life in general. Listen to what one author says. Accordingly, When Peter heeds the call of Jesus, when he exhibits great faith, when he confesses Jesus to be the Son of God, when he obeys Jesus or shows himself to be repentant, he stands out as an example for members of the church. On the other hand, when he gives way to fear, to doubt, to little faith, when he rejects the word of Jesus, when he threatens to undo his call to discipleship by becoming a stumbling block, when he fails to persevere and watch in prayer in time of temptation, when he denies Jesus, he stands out as a sharp warning to post-Easter Christians. You see, the life of Peter 
in many ways encapsulates what it means to be a Christian. Great triumphs of faith, receiving wonderful blessings from the Lord, following Him with courage, having a heart filled with faith and hope and love, and yet at the same time, failing, stumbling, denying, wavering in faith, being filled with doubt. All of these things, we can relate to all of the stumblings, all of the failings that Peter has experienced all throughout his life. And so in this passage, as the one who makes this confession of Christ, he shows himself as the spokesman, a bit of a leader within the circle of disciples, but then also reminding us that he himself in his life shows us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. For in the very next passage, he's going to be rebuked because he rejects the word of Jesus. And so then as we close this morning, brothers and sisters, thinking about all of these things, are you secure in Christ or are you on sinking sand? Are you secure in Christ or are you on sinking sand? Peter encapsulates the experience of all Christians. His faith is not perfect. It's far from it. Peter will reject Jesus' words, as we said in the next passage. He still has yet to deny Jesus in the hour of trial. But what has Peter done here? What does this passage teach us about what it means to confess Christ? He has put all of his eggs in the basket of Christ. He has bought all stock in this one person. People talk about having a diversified portfolio. The spiritual portfolio of Peter is not diversified at all. He shows us what true faith is because he says, everything I have, I put on this one. I give all of my life, I take all my life and all that I have, and I set myself on the cornerstone of Christ. Places himself dead upon that cornerstone of Jesus Christ. He has abandoned all else. Even amidst his own failings, his own misunderstandings, there's a lot of growth that Peter still has to go through, a lot of things he still has to learn, but he has abandoned all else to place himself upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. So Peter himself is not the cornerstone of the church, but in this passage he becomes the first rock in redemptive history who lays himself upon the cornerstone in this way, and that is why Jesus commends him. And he gives us the example that all of us may follow. Friends, is this what you have done? Is this your heart of faith upon Christ the cornerstone? John Newton was a man who knew a lot about uh, a divided heart and defiled hands. He was a man who knew a lot about the power of God's saving grace, his amazing grace. He says these things. A Christian's hope is not based on our unsettling feelings of joy in Christ, but on Christ himself. Look unto Jesus, he says. This is the duty, the privilege, the safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer. All are comprised in that one sentence. Look unto Jesus. Then he says this, My hope is built not on frames and feelings, Not the particular disposition of my emotions on a peculiar day, but upon the atonement 
and the mediation of Christ? Have you placed yourself dead upon the cornerstone of Christ? Is that your hope? Is that your plea? If you are doing so, beloved, then rejoice. Jesus also says a lot that we could unpack uh, in regards to the keys of the kingdom. And thankfully, this is expanded upon in chapter 18. The, The context of chapter 16 with the keys of the kingdom is really the confession that Peter has just made. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. In other words, I want you to go forth and to proclaim the message about who I am and what I will do for the salvation of my people, that people may enter into the kingdom of heaven on the basis of what you have just done in confessing Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior. Chapter 18 will deal more specifically with what do you do when someone's life is out of accord with their profession of Christ. But here the context is with the keys of the kingdom that the the, the kingdom of heaven is to be flung wide open with a clear proclamation of who Jesus Christ is. And that's exactly what Peter will do in Acts chapter 2. He will tell all of those who are within earshot who Christ is and what he has done. And he will proclaim him. And remember, people will be cut to the heart and they will say to Peter, what shall we do? What can we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent And be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Come to Christ, believe in him, trust in him, for the promises for you and for your children, for many who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, the Pharisees, what do they do? They shut the kingdom of heaven. They shut it. Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, here are the keys. Fling wide the gates of heaven. Proclaim who I am, that others may do what you have done and come to Christ and set themselves dead upon the cornerstone. Here is where assurance is found in the person of Christ. Here is where your only hope is found in fleeing to him for refuge. Brothers and sisters, have you built, are you building your life on the rock, the rock of Christ? Your righteousness will fail you. Your feelings will waver. Your good works are as nothing, but blessed is the one who says, Jesus is Lord and Christ, the Son of the living God. If you confess Christ before men, you can be assured that he will confess you before his Father who is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you, we praise you for this passage that we receive as from you, as from your word. We thank you for the hope and the assurance of confessing Christ that we have seen the apostle Peter did on that great day, and that the spiritual house of the the new covenant church has been built upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ our Lord. And many stones, living stones, have been added to that structure Uh, since that day. And we thank you. We pray that uh, you will bring to us a deep conviction of our need to do what Peter has done, to continually look unto Christ for all that we need, uh, for he is our life. And Jesus, we praise you. We love you. We thank you for the price that was paid. We thank you that you have told us you will be with us to the end of the age. And we ask that uh, you will continue to give us the grace of the Holy Spirit uh, to live 
lives of free and joyful service unto you, who has already given all for us. And we thank you and praise you. Oh God, we pray to you in Christ's name. Amen. We stand together and sing number 467.